Hi, and welcome to America This Week from the Harris Poll. I'm John Gersma, and as always, I'm joined with my co-host and Harris Chief Strategy Officer, Libby Rodney. Hey, Libby. Hey, John. How you doing? I'm doing great. I am so excited today because we've got some great data to cover. We also have a very special guest who's going to come on to our program. Libby, you want to tell us a little bit about what we're going to cover in this week's episode? Yeah, we're going to cover what are people lying about, John? Truth, <laughs> lies, and social media. More on that in a minute. We're going to cover our favorite story of the week. Patagonia CEO gives away his company and we're going to just talk about a couple of quick facts there. And then we're so lucky to have Catherine on to talk about the benefits bubble, the widening gap between employee expectations and company policies. All right. That sounds like a lot of great stuff. Why don't we uh, jump right into it? The first thing we do is always is we talk about the weekly heat, which are three of the week's most important numbers in public opinion. These three numbers, Libby, this week come to us from our brand new Harvard Caps Harris Poll that we just launched uh, on Friday. So this is September data covering American voters and their opinions on America and the economy. And Libby, the first number is 32. Do you want to know what 32 stands for? Of well, course. 32 <laughs> is really the interesting d- dilemma here with the American public with only a third of American voters at 32% believe the country is on the right track. Now, that doesn't sound good, perhaps, but that is an eight-point increase from June's low of 24%. So the narrative that you're going to kind of see in here, Libby, is there's a little bit of creeping optimism into some otherwise uh, dire numbers. So the second number is 30, and that is 30% of the voters who say the U.S. economy is on the right track. Again, a small group, less than a third, but they are also up for the third consecutive month from June's low of only 21%. So a nine-point bump there. And Libby, the last number is 54. This is a good number. The majority of American voters, again, this is coming down, which is good news, but the majority of American voters (laughs) at 54% still see their personal financial situation worsening. But again, that number falling is good news. Now it's down for the third consecutive month also by 10 points from June. I don't know, Libby, what do you think about the weekly heat numbers here? You know, it seems like Americans are saying, hey, it's bad, but maybe it's getting a little better. Yeah. I mean, uh, from the the data that our colleague Mark Penn reports, it's we're definitely seeing these fluctuations happening as we hit midterms. We're starting to see that midterms still remain nearly in a dead heat, even though Biden's approval rating is still underwater at 41%. So there's all these kind of variables, you know, there's Roe v. Wade, there's the Consumer Pricing Index, there's in, the Inflationary Act, kind of all these things are going on. But John, well, how, how do you think that's going to impact, you know, the way people move forward? You know, I, I think it's really interesting because the real big focus, obviously, that the Republicans have had on the Democrats and the referendum for the midterm was going to be the economy, right? So this optimism to me is a little interesting because it's really countering the main sword that I think they were going to use. And we see that in, in other parts of Mark's new data. And we encourage everybody to, to look at that. We'll, we'll post all the data in the show notes. You know, with that, GOP would love to talk inflation. And the Dems would obviously love to talk Roe v. Wade. And somewhere in the middle is probably immigration. It was interesting to note Governor DeSantis's actions on shipping a plane load of migrants to Martha's Vineyard this week. A lot of, of tossing and turning here, I believe. It's, it's going to be an interesting one. There's great data in there. Let's get <laughs> into our first big story. So, okay, Libby, I want you to think about... It's the 1990s. You're you're on a <laughs> you're on a subway, and you look at the person a- across from you, 
and he's got a an economist magazine maybe secretly underneath he's got a hello magazine or <laughs> what else was big during the, those days us weekly the yeah. same thing is happening in today's era with social media this is i think really fascinating data what we're going to get into is really the question of whether you fib of where you get your news from so that maybe you look a little bit more intellectual and what you're going to find out is that a lot of americans do this so if you're one you can feel like you're part of a crowd so here's the numbers you need to know it's probably not surprising that there is a generation gap in news consumption. So first of all, 66% of Gen Z and 58% of millennials, our younger Americans, report getting their information predominantly from social platforms. And that's different from Xers and Boomers who they say 54% of Gen X and 61% of boomers say they get their news from local news. So different dynamic there. What's interesting though, is when you step back and look at all Americans, 65%, almost two thirds of them say that they have learned something from social media, right? Like a new fact or a new mm -hmm. skill, but Libby, close to a third of them, 31% say that they have told someone that they learned it elsewhere. It's really significantly even more so among younger Americans. Gen Z say they've told someone something they've learned and attributed it to something other than social media at 60% and millennials at 53%. So, I mean, Livy, are we embarrassed <laughs> to admit that we learned something on TikTok? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think the crux of this, I think it's so interesting, by the way. I mean, we know and we've seen this. We do a lot of uh, research for news organizations and journalists, and we think it's so important that these these credible, you know, places of, of news and facts exist. You know, whenever you've done that research in the last 10 years, you just constantly see this trend towards younger people consuming all their news on social media. The thing is, young people are very knowledgeable and understanding that misinformation is spreading on these social channels. You know, they will cite documentaries like The Social Dilemma. And so they're very aware that these news stores aren't sources aren't being fact-checked and things like that. But, you know, there's kind of two things working against local news, which is this idea that there's paywalls and there's paywalls up on everything right now. And that's really hard in these kind of inflationary times. And then the second thing is that social media is just their DNA, right? It's where they breathe. It's where they connect. And it's, it's very engaging. So they lie because they know that it's not as credentialized as a New York Times or Wall Street Journal. But they I think the really interesting implication is that like, what does it take then to credentialize these platforms? What does it take to take the knowledge that's already happening and being shared on social media and raise it up to a standard that would almost be similar to something you might find on local news? Because I think what was really interesting is we were talking mental health expert the other day, and he said these peer-to-peer -peer platforms, they can either be the most devastating thing and fuel things like eating disorders and anxiety, or they can be the most uplifting things and help others get through tough times, create social movements, create collective understanding of things. And I have noticed, for example, on TikTok, that it's a really undercover learning channel and you, you can learn so much and you can learn things easy, but you just don't know exactly what's truth or not. So it's going to be this kind of wading through this this water. And so, John, you know, where do you think this leaves local news? You know, there's obviously a big societal role for it, but 
we might be fibbing about it, but we're still, especially younger Americans are still engaging and finding primarily their news source through these social media channels, whether they want to admit it or not. We could spend an hour talking about this, but I'll, I'll try to be <laughs> succinct. You know what? I, I think a lot of what we've seen in our Harris poll data, Libby, is that Americans by and large, by almost a two-thirds margin, trust local institutions more than they do national institutions. Mm-hmm. We see that um, with local hospitals and public health. And as you recall, you know, we've been running this weekly COVID tracker since March of 2020. And during the critical phases of the vaccination phase, when there was so much misinformation and, and skepticism and, and obviously duly warranted with many Americans, the trust that they were placing on potentially getting the vaccine was placed more in their local context. You know, it was it was with their faith-based leaders and their churches and their communities and with their local doctors than from whatever the CDC was, was saying or, or what the administrations were saying. So I think it's a real interesting opportunity for validating some of these platforms and and obviously putting some guardrails around them. There's some great examples on TikTok. My daughter pointed one out to me that she uses, but it's called TikToks, (laughs) which are basically these short, fast videos. It's basically the way she kind of explained it to me. It's Libby, it's like the video version of WebMD. If you could build credibility around those and make sure they're, I, I wouldn't use the word regulated, but how they're sort of endorsed, that could be sort of interesting dimension. Lastly, just real quick, tell tell me what you've learned so far in your TikTok learning project. <laughs> Listen, so I went on a TikTok learning project mostly because I was like, I need to know and stay up to date with this platform, especially after hearing the CEO of Google saying that 40% of people are searching actively on TikTok and kind of taking over some of uh, Google's business. And mm-hmm. so that indicates that this is a platform for everyone. It's It's a it's a highway, a super information highway that you need to understand and be on. What I have learned is that there's a lot of ways in which people kind of break down content to make it really easy to learn. So, you know, a lot of the kind of the ways that TikTok will to break up things is they have these commentaries that a lot of people can join in on. Like, what are five things I would never do from the point of view of an ex. So I've been really into those videos. It's like, what are five things I would never do? I'm a pediatrician. What are five things I would never do? I worked at a hotel. What are five things I'd never do? I'm an, I'm a pilot, you know? And it, it's like, okay, I don't know. There's this need for safety right now. So all of that really resonates with me. And I, I swear I've learned a lot. <laughs> so <laughs> I feel like there's, there's real value there, but also it creates conversation for, for certain issues issues. People talk about history. Again, it you do want it kind of validated. And so it will be interesting as more and more news sources get in there and, and create their own versions of this, similar to what we've seen on YouTube. Libby, tell us a little bit about your favorite story of the week. So Patagonia, this is our favorite story. John literally texted me the moment that it came out on the New York Times and said, oh man, this is nuts. Um, and I, I think of it as just the ultimate mic drop, right? So <laughs> Patagonia fa- founder Yaven Chouinard uh, is giving away his multi-billion dollar business that he founded nearly 50 years ago Incredible. and with the primary goal of helping tackle climate change. So Chouinard and his family have trained transferred the ownership of Patagonia to a trust and a nonprofit organization. And this is in opposition to he could have made it 
public, but he said in his letter to, to the world saying, Earth is now our only shareholder. And so some facts and implications here of like what Patagonia could do for the world. Well, first of all, it's valued at $3 billion. And second of all, they get about $100 million in profit. And all of that, $100 million a year, will be used to combat climate change and protect the undeveloped land around the world. And man, that what a statement, John. I mean, Patagonia, we already saw in our research nonstop, comes up over and over as the top brand, a premium brand. You know, how do, you, how do we digest this? Is this going to forever seal Patagonia's relevancy and generosity in the mindset of consumers? Libby, I'm just going to tell you, I had the honor of speaking at Patagonia. Patagonia, when my second book came out, it was called Spend Shift and talking about coming out of the recession, how values were going to be driving consumption. And we, I just had the greatest day out there. I, I cannot tell you, these guys walk their talk and <laughs> there's everything from on-site daycare for employees, including a park. And I remember going in between meetings and kids were all playing and people were stopping, parents were stopping and checking in with their kids in between meetings. I mean, as close to Nirvana as I could kind of see <laughs> in the day I spent there. But what I think is really interesting about this is looking at our corporate reputation data. You know, we do this survey with Axios. We have the Axios Harris Poll 100. And Patagonia was number three this year in most admired companies. It was number one in 2021 last year. And it continues to be a top five company. It has been for the last 10 years. And I think what's so incredible about it is just how inclusive it is as well. I mean, there's within the top 10 for Republicans, it's the sixth most admired among Democrats. It's admired in the suburban, rural, over 30, under 30. We'll put a chart in the show notes. I don't have time to get into it, but it is just a, a, a case study of an admired company that sort of stands for its values and it's refreshing. But enough about that. Let's get to the exciting <laughs> part. I, we are welcoming you into our, our podcast. Really amazing uh, woman. Mm -hmm. This is Catherine Collinson, who uh, runs the Transamerica Institute. And Catherine, say hi. How are you? It is so great to be here. Hey, I'm just going to say I'm huge fans of both of you. And Catherine's coming to us from L.A. today, I believe. Yes, indeed. All right. I, Libby, I wanted you to meet Catherine because you guys are two of my favorite planners. That's the way I think oh, about you guys. Wonderful. You guys are great studies of culture. <laughs> so just real quick on Catherine. She's the founding CEO and president of Transamerica Institute. And this is a nonprofit that is really focused. I'm going to have her talk more about it, but on identifying, researching, and educating the public about health and wellness, uh, employment, financial literacy, and a lot of those other good things. She has a, another part of this group, which is called the Transamerica Center for Retirement Studies, which does just really some, some great work. But let's just get into it. Catherine, you know, according to the Transamerica Institute latest report, we're finding that employers are coming up short on providing benefits that are important to workers. And Libby and I got together and we suggested that maybe this tight labor market, there might be a benefits bubble. Is there something going on with that? Well, if not a benefits bubble, there's definitely a benefits gap in terms <laughs> of the importance that workers are placing on benefits relative to employers actually offering those benefits. 
Yeah, that that's so fascinating, Catherine. Maybe um, can you start at the beginning? What were the goals of the survey and who did we talk to in this? The goals of the survey were to really examine where employers are at with their mm-hmm. employee benefits, their retirement benefits, as well as other business practices of what we call best practices for a multi-generational workforce, because we mm. now have four and some would, some would argue five generations in the workforce. So in this snapshot in time, as we're emerging from the pandemic, knowing that there's all sorts of activity in the workforce and the employment market, where where do employers stand? And we surveyed, with Harris Poll, surveyed uh, 1,874 employers of for-profit companies. And then in our worker survey, we were able to do some comparisons of employer perspectives on a topic versus where workers stand. And maybe surprising, maybe not surprising, there were some gaps. Can you um, can you talk to us about that? What were the findings regarding, well, you know, what we'd love to know first is like, what were the overall findings regarding employers and their sense of their sense of responsibility to their employees. What does that look like? Well, many, many might find this surprising, if not downright. <laughs> for me, it was quite striking, the extent mm-hmm. to which employers do feel responsible for their employees. Uh, in my mm-hmm. own travels, and an- anecdotally, often I hear a certain element of apprehension about that, yet uh, it came through in the survey, employers truly feel responsible for their employees. So I'll give you an example or two, uh, because we love to talk about surveys. Yeah. 81% of employers feel responsible for helping their employees maintain their long-term health and well-being. That is four in five employers. 72% cite one or more concerns about employees' mental health, which of course has become a big area of focus for everyone, mental health that is, during the pandemic. And then a last factoid I'll share with you, 64% of employers believe that health insurance, retirement benefits, and other benefits are very important in their ability Mm. to attract and retain employees. So employers get it. So they, so they seem to get it. And then what did you find about, you know, what employ, what workers want in terms of benefits versus what employers are offering in terms of benefits? So on one level, employers get it, but (laughs) on another, they're not quite getting it. So we see some disconnects in terms of importance that workers are placing on benefits relative employers who actually offer those specific benefits. For example, 93% of workers think health insurance is important, but only 56% of employers offer it. Mm -hmm. Similarly, 89% of workers think a 401k plan is important compared with only 55% of employers who offer one. So listeners, we have the benefit looking at one of Catherine's, what I call a money chart. I always love money charts. When you look at this, (laughs) you go, wow. But this is a bar chart that lays out uh, the the differences between what workers say they want paired to what employers say that they're willing to offer, essentially. And I think, Catherine, what is fascinating about this bar chart is that the delta, the difference between these are anywhere between 34 points as much as 58 points apart. I wonder if you could just sort of like talk a little bit more about that, you know, in the context of just how far apart you've got 
employers thinking they're doing a good job and saying it's important, employees saying no. I mean, how can we be so far apart and what do we have to do to bring them more aligned? Well, hopefully this is a big alarm for employers, an alarm clock sounding, (laughs) that it's time to focus on this, especially with widespread labor shortages and what commonly referred to as the great resignation. Mm. These gaps have actually persisted for, for quite some time. And we see a couple of contributing factors. One is employers and their and workers just aren't always in sync. Mm-hmm. That disconnect, uh, unfortunately, are quite common. Another th- attribute that we see is larger employers are much more likely to offer a wide array of benefits to their employers compared with small businesses. And this is something that has persisted for years. And now is the time to really put a spotlight on this so that small businesses can look into things that might be right for their business, which leads to the third thing that we've seen over the years is many employers, they don't have endless resources or checkbooks where they can fund all these benefits. However, now is a really important time to take a look at it. There are more options available in the marketplace than ever before. It's a highly competitive industry. So an employer not offering benefits may not be aware that there's options that may be more affordable than they think. So that's that's also a big contributing factor. But now, I would challenge employers not offering benefits to ask the question, what is the cost to the organization in terms of inability to attract talent or even losing employees because they don't offer them? That's so interesting. If I, I could just follow up on that, just let, pull a thread on something you said earlier. It was so fascinating. You said that we are four, perhaps five generations now in the workplace. Is that another stressor that's causing sort of the ships to pass in the night between workers and, and employers? And what do employers have to do to sort of think, I mean, do they need to think like a segmentation study for different ages and different needs? One really big thing is to just tune into it. It's This is unprecedented. People living longer and working longer to have four, and some even argue five generations in the workforce, mm-hmm. who all bring different skills, different life experience, different perspectives. And Academic studies and case studies are starting to show that diverse teams outperform homogenous teams in terms of age diversity, which is really exciting. And we asked employers if they considered their companies to be age-friendly, that is, having business practices so that employees of all ages could be successful. And... uh, Um, 87% said yes, they're age-friendly. We asked workers, uh, scratch that, 84% of employers said that they're age-friendly. Fewer workers actually agreed with that statement. Only 65% (laughs) say they consider their employers to be age-friendly. And what are some data points or some ways to illustrate age-friendliness? One is establishing a diversity and inclusion policy statement that references age among other commonly referenced demographic characteristics. Only about one in three employers, 34%, actually have Mm. taken that step. And then, of course, there's other business practices as well. Flexible work arrangements, alternative work arrangements can really help a multi-generational workforce and people in different life phases. So, for example, things like flexible schedules, the ability to work remotely, working hours as needed can be beneficial to, say, younger workers who may be looking to start a family and need work 
life balance to do that. And at the other end of the age spectrum, older workers who may may be looking to transition to retirement, but don't want to give up their employment altogether. What's really exciting about this is these types of work arrangements and ideas can create a much more equitable and inclusive workforce. Without them, Prior to the pandemic, when the when it when it became clear that workers can work remotely successfully, many employers were reluctant to offer it, and there are portions of the workforce that weren't able to work because those arrangements weren't available. For example, maybe a caregiver for an aging parent or loved one having to choose between their livelihood and their loved ones. This evolution of new work arrangements bodes really well for the future and for all four or five <laughs> generations <laughs> in the workforce, depending on how you count. This is so interesting. I mean, Libby, you're, you're, you've done so much research in the labor market. And I'm just coming to mind as Catherine's talking about some of the things that we've seen, right? Uh, whether it's the work you and Dami have done with Hugh around inequity uh, in the workplace. And then I'm thinking about uh, the work that you did with women and BIPOC workers and how they preferred remote work versus being in the office. I mean, there's some interesting parallels we can draw in all of this. I mean, I think there's some big parallels that you kind of see across all business leaders versus employee type surveys where there's just always a giant gap. <laughs> like Business leaders generally think they're doing well on lots of things and employees are like, hey, are you here? Are you in this reality? What's going on? <laughs> but really, I think Catherine's research points out and the, the power of this research is, hey, there is a lot of factors that in our, that need to be influenced to the future of work because we don't have to face the, the labor shortages we're facing today. There are ways to increase your benefits to Catherine's points, but there are also ways to think about the generation inclusion that you keep into your workforce, the flexibility you keep in, to her point about making sure people who are hard pressed for caretaking feel like they can raise their hand I think there's going to be so many different modules of flexibility that will take away some of the pressure that we're under today with, with the labor market and that don't necessarily have to be there. We're just not comfortable with yet because we've been in a very traditional structured model and companies, corporations across the world are kind of trying to figure out how do you keep top talent? How do you keep agile talent? And how do you kind of move all those pieces together? And workers are saying, of course, of course it should be this way. Now that I've experienced it in the pandemic, now that I've experienced this flexibility, now that I know what I'm good at, and now that I know I have to upskill myself because employers aren't doing it for me, it's just becoming much more of a free agent model. So what are those new ways of bringing people back in the loop and then allowing people as they reimagine retirement to continue in the workforce? Because again, that takes some pressure off the labor market. Great points, Libby. And Catherine, this is just fantastic research. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for joining us. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the Transamerica Institute and the Center for Retirement Studies. And then lastly, I, we hear you have a podcast. Can you tell us about ClearPath? Absolutely. Um, we're a nonprofit private foundation. We get our funding from Transamerica Corporation, one of the large financial services company. One thing I'm really proud of, our annual retirement survey is now one of the largest and longest running of its kind. We're in 22 years, going on 23 next year, and have so thoroughly enjoyed working with Harris Poll over the years. Um, 
you can find our work at transamericainstitute.org. And we have a weekly podcast, Clear Path, Your Roadmap to Health and Wealth, in collaboration with WYPR, Baltimore's NPR news station. And each week we pick a topic. Uh, we try to be very universal in na- nature to offer insights in terms of how we can all live better lives. So we'll have health-related topics, wellness topics, and then financial workforce and retirement topics. Oh, Catherine, so much. Thank you so much. This is Catherine yes, Collinson, thank you. the leader of the Transamerica Institute and Transamerica Center for Retirement Studies. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Libby, I think we're going to sign off, but I wanted to thank our listeners for joining us. And if you have polling ideas, please hit us up, right, Libby? I'll reach out to Libby Rodney or, or John G at LinkedIn. We'd appreciate your ideas and we'd hopefully be able to present you a poll in the future. Um, and if you liked any of this banter, please leave us a review. It helps other listeners find us. So thank you both. Thank you, Catherine. Thank, thank you. you. Oh, thank you.